I was stopped by the Ukrainian forces and they said, no, you can't go. And of course, we naturally start arguing. And then they pointed to a body in the grass next to us and said, that's a dead journalist. God. And it was Brent Renaud's body under a blanket right there next to us. And that was unbelievably sobering and tragic to see. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Jane Ferguson, a PBS NewsHour correspondent and a contributor to The New Yorker. Jane has been reporting from Ukraine for the last two weeks, covering the carnage wrought by the Russian invasion and the massive refugee crisis that it has sparked. Jane has years of experience covering foreign conflict. She's reported from war zones throughout the Middle East and Africa. She's covered ISIS in Iraq, uh, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban after America's military withdrawal, and she snuck into Houthi-controlled Yemen to cover the famine caused by the civil war there. I called up Jane on Wednesday to discuss what it's been like reporting inside Ukraine, how she copes with covering war, and why so many journalists seem to be caught in the crossfire of this particular conflict. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So first off, where are you currently? Currently in Kyiv right now. I just got back to the capital from Mykolaiv, which is a city on the south, um, kind of in the crosshairs of the Russians. But yeah, just returned uh, this morning from uh, from there up here to the capital, Kyiv. And how long have you been in Ukraine? I have been here about two weeks now, almost two weeks, um, which pales in comparison to a lot of my colleagues who are, are the zombies walking the hallways of this hotel and who have been <laughs> here for two months. Are you in one of those hotels where it's mostly reporters now? Is that sort of like what the scene is at hotels right now? Yes, absolutely. I've, I've it, further west in Lviv, which is close to the Polish border. You see a lot more of a mixture of of Ukrainians who are on the move. Um, you know, families or, or or couples who are waiting to either waiting it out there or, or leaving, and journalists. And it's typically one of the two. Right. And um, what is life like in Kiev right now? Is it uh, does it feel like a city under siege? It does actually. I mean. It's always funny and it's strange in in war zones which which is a vague sort of term but there there's there is what you would expect which is quite very eerie quiet streets the sound of fighting on the outskirts sometimes the sound of of incoming and outgoing fire pretty close in into town um a lot of soldiers checkpoints everywhere very paranoid jumpy checkpoints mm. But then there are also these other sort of strange, surreal moments where I'll be standing in the street and I'll see someone stop for the traffic lights and there's no traffic. Or I'll see a little old lady out in a fur coat walking her dog. So, you know, there are signs of life, but they're just not as, uh, uh, you know, not not as numerous as they should be. Today was a beautiful, um, mercifully mild spring day and the streets were empty because right. there was a curfew. And now are, are businesses open? Very few. Okay. Very few are open. Um, it's hard for them to operate because of curfews, because of checkpoints. Um, you know, the few that are open tend to be coffee shops because soldiers love to drink coffee. So we do Makes see sense. those staying open a little more. But generally speaking, um, most businesses are shuttered. Yeah, I, you know, I was speaking to uh, Dan McLaughlin. Uh, he was a, a guest on this show a few a few weeks ago, and he's a, a, the Eastern European correspondent for the Irish Times. And uh, he lamented that um, booze is no longer being sold 
in Ukraine, which which does make sense during a during an armed conflict. So I imagine bars aren't open. The bars are not open. The hotels don't serve alcohol. Um, I think us journalists have gotten it down to the actual syntax here that it is illegal to sell alcohol. It is not illegal to consume alcohol. So that was the first bit um, of investigation that was done. I imagine that that had to be clarified, right. you know. Um, but um, no, I mean, I think it's important in terms of there's a sense here that it's important for morale. You know, all the men are meant to be out fighting, and and some of the women are also out fighting. Many mm. women are involved in. In, in volunteering. So I think as far as the authorities are concerned, it's a matter of priorities right now. Right. And are you able to maintain any sort of routine when you're on an assignment like this? Like, what does your day look like right now? It's hard for me to talk about routine as much as perhaps some of the, the sort of more the, the network correspondence, because at PBS, typically what what I do and what what is, is my sort of specialism is in-depth magazine length reporting where I'll often go and do feature reporting. You know, we'll do a series from Afghanistan on women's rights, or we'll do a series from Somalia on climate change, or we'll go to Yemen and cover the war. But I feel very much so in control of my day because I'm doing feature reporting. Um, So once in a while, you find yourself on this huge news story where you have to file, if not every night, most nights. And we at PBS uh, cover stories incredibly in depth. So we're we're filing lengthy pieces. So I'm typically getting up early in the morning and we are trying to see what it is possible that we can that we can film. It's become more restrictive. The Ukrainian military have become more um, restrictive when it comes to journalists access to, to the front. But, you know, we work with incredible fixers and local producers who help us get out there. Um, we film. I got to be sitting at my laptop, whether or not that's in the backseat of a car or, you know, in my hotel room, I need to be at that laptop by about 5.30 or 6, writing a script and, and getting that into my editor, um, to, to, to my cameraman, who will edit that. We will turn a piece around for the, the news in the evening, which means that really needs to be in for the news hour by about 10.30, 11 o'clock local time in Ukraine. Then we've got a test for our live shot. We've got our live shot at midnight. Um, and then we get up early in the morning and start all over again. So it's almost, it's like what the 24 hour cable news networks are doing where, you know, it's like every day you have to, you know, do a five minute hit, you know, once every couple of hours just to give an update on what the breaking news is. Well, we don't do the, the, like throughout the day, I'll do Mm. a live hit at the end after, after our piece airs, but, uh, but we do a longer piece. The piece will be about six or seven minutes long. And, um, and that's, and that's definitely, you know, a a really big challenge for us. We're trying to find that balance between context and depth Mm. and covering the breaking news of of the of the day and 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 figuring out what we can actually manage to put together in only so many hours. One of the ways we've been managing is we've been using sleeper trains. If I need to go somewhere, I can't give up a whole day of reporting. I'll have nothing to report in the evenings. So we sleep on the trains. Ukraine has a phenomenal train system that the government here, to their credit, has managed to keep running. So I'll I'll sleep on on the sleeper train. um, And and when I arrive at the other end, I get up and start working again. So so that's an incredible way to save time. Yeah. Now, in just a few short weeks since this evasion began, we've seen at least from what I can tell, a pretty shocking amount of journalists caught in the crossfire of the war. Uh, There was Brent Renault, who was filming documentary for Time, uh, who was killed. Uh, A Fox News crew was attacked. Uh, The cameraman uh, tragically died. And a pretty pretty prominent reporter, Benjamin Hall, uh, was wounded. 
As a reporter on the ground, what does it feel like to see those attacks on journalists in, in Ukraine right now? It's been unbelievably shocking. I mean, you know, I've covered, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, all conflicts that have been deadly for journalists. But I think what has been so shocking about this this war is how fast paced those losses were. We, I believe it's five journalists dead now right. um, in, in, in Ukraine. And that's that was in about three weeks Five dead in three weeks is unbelievable. Um, that's three Ukrainian reporters, as well as Pierre, the the Fox News cameraman, mm-hmm. um, who who was an Irish citizen, and um, and Brent, the American uh, 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 f- uh, photojournalist and documentarian. That's an unbelievable toll. We're also starting to hear news from Reporters Without Borders that came out today that some reporters, uh, Ukrainian reporters, that have been caught behind the lines and, and been basically captured by Russians have been tortured. Oh. So it's it's an incredibly dangerous um, place to work. I think one of the most difficult things that journalists have been grappling with after hearing the news of every death is, you know, how do we possibly avoid that? Because very often these journalists are not doing something that the rest of us aren't. You know, right. they're not pushing the envelope, going to incredibly dangerous places or, you know, and so it, it's hard. You know, the last 20 years we've been covering post 9-11 wars. We've been covering insurgencies. We're either with the insurgents embedded with them or or we're, we're kind of more with the government forces. Here you've got two conventional armies fighting each other with heavy artillery fire, rockets, airstrikes. You know, that means front lines are extremely fluid and extremely it just deadly and indiscriminate. And that has been, I think, one of the biggest challenges of the last few weeks for journalists. Uh, did you know Pierre, the, the Fox News uh, photojournalist at all? I had met Pierre before a long time ago in France during the attacks on um, Bastille Day, during right. the ISIS-inspired attacks. And we'd had dinner, as many groups of journalists tend to do. We tend yeah. to sort of group together. Um, I know that he was incredibly charismatic and kind and one of the most experienced out there in the whole business. Um, I wouldn't say I knew him particularly well beyond that, that, that we had met before. Mm. Now, as you mentioned, like you've reported from war zones across the Middle East and Africa, uh, including in Yemen and Iraq and Afghanistan. And you, as you say, and, and I think you, you said this on, on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago, and it, it sort of stuck with me that this is unlike anything you'd ever experienced before. Why? First of all, does it feel more dangerous in Ukraine than other conflicts that you've covered? And why do you think that is that it's that it's more dangerous Ukraine than the other conflicts you've covered? Because you certainly covered conflicts that have gotten out of control that aren't sort of just conventional warfare, where it's very clear to see who's a journalist and who isn't. Absolutely, you know. I mean, I've been in 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 conflict zones where I've traveled through Al Qaeda controlled areas. Um, you know, I've covered, uh, I've been in Taliban controlled areas in, in Somalia. I've covered the, you know, the, the battle for Mogadishu. I, I've, I've covered a lot of combat and a lot of quote unquote dangerous wars. You know, it's very hard to measure danger, but what I can say is that what I come away from here with is this sense that it's very difficult to get a grasp on the parameters of this war. You know, wh- where is the front line? You know, who who is a combatant and who is not? You know, how to safely cover this war? Um, you can't really safely cover any wars, but how to manage risk mm. is seems all the more challenging here. Everybody's trying to ask themselves questions as to where we can go, where we can't go. How do we get there? You know, this is... Partly because the front line is so fluid, because heavy artillery fire is being used, um, because 
you have incredibly jumpy soldiers everywhere who are terrified of of Russian saboteurs in the city. Um, but also because it's a very new war. You know, we have we haven't settled into parameters of this front line and this front line and and you know these fixers who have been working in this specific community for a long time and these soldiers, commanders who know the journalists, you know, it's so fresh that there's a sense that there's a sort of a feeling of chaos to it in mm. these early weeks that I haven't felt when I'm covering, you know, the, the combat against Mo ISIS in Mosul or Raqqa or, or covering, um, you know, conflicts in, in Somalia or Yemen where, where we're with local experts and with local community leaders and with, you know, we're able to get under the skin of a story more. Here, there's a there's an almost sort of menacing feeling that you're kind of just driving around trying to 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 to, to news gather as best you can. Right. But it feels it doesn't feel as well equipped and as as well um it doesn't feel as, as sort of grounded as it does in those other places. I, I feel like I'm being vague, but um, but talking to other journalists, we all feel like we're struggling to get a foothold in how to do this with with risk managed. Right. Now, and, you know, I, I, that that rings true. You know, I was reading this story about the, the two Daily Beast uh, reporters. They were uh, freelancers that were working for the Daily Beast, and they were in a car uh, that was marked press. And uh, they believe a Russian soldier opened fire on the car and both of them uh, got pretty badly wounded. Uh, thank God neither of them died. But um, how do you calculate risk personally? Is that something that you're able to just do sort of by situation? You know, it's actually not difficult to calculate risk personally in the sense of it's not difficult to sit down with yourself and decide what risks you're willing to take. The difficulty is trying to figure out what's risky and what's not. Right. You know, if I know that, you know, going from southern Yemen to northern Yemen and crossing over that front line into rebel held territory, it, I know the risks. I can understand them. I can account for most of them. And then I can sit down and have a conversation with myself about what I'm prepared to do. But the problem here is that you could be just driving down the road that you've driven down right. 50 times and suddenly there's gunfire and and no one will quite be able to explain to you where it comes from and who they are. You know, there was a Sky News team who were driving around uh, Kiev in the early days of the war, the British network, um, an incredibly experienced uh, team of, of, of war reporters. And, you know, their car was 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 absolutely shattered and and. Um, came under a hail of bullets. It was remarkable that they survived. The correspondent was injured and needed surgery. But um, but again, we still don't really know where that came from or what happened. So it's not hard to decide what risks you're okay with and what you're not okay with. What's hard is trying to figure out what the risks are right. here. Have you run into any hairy situations with either troops or civilians since you've been in Ukraine? On my first day here... I get off the sleeper train from Lviv from in the West where you cross over from Poland, right. get off the train into uh, Kiev. In the very first day, I was going to go to Irpin, which is that town on the outskirts. And this was the Sunday mm. that so many journalists were attacked and killed. And I was stopped by the uh, Ukrainian forces just right at the very last checkpoint before you turn out of the city and towards that village. And they said, no, you can't go. And of course, we naturally start arguing. And then they pointed to a body in the grass next to us and said, that's a dead journalist. Gosh. And it was Brent Renaud's body under a blanket oh right there next to us. And that was unbelievably sobering and tragic to see. 
um, we 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 left after doing some reporting in the area, and then we went tried to cross the river to go to the other side of of, of the city the next morning. And we were driving along, and my my cameraman was filming at the at the window. And we know not to film, obviously, at checkpoints, but there wasn't a checkpoint. Instead, the um, there happened to be a military facility to the left that was unmarked. A gunman jumped out and like surrounded our car in a way that was highly professional, highly uh, charged and extraordinarily tense. Um, for a second, I was absolutely certain they'd shoot us. Instead, they surrounded the car, pulled us out of the car at gunpoint. I mean, guns were pointed at us made us put our hands on, on the on the bonnet and roof of the car and, and held us there. They tried to take my cameraman away, uh, but I made a big fuss and wouldn't wouldn't let them do that. Um, but it was unbelievably tense. Those were Ukrainian forces. And, and many journalists I've talked to have had that experience. And that was my first 36 hours in this city. Wow. Are, do the Ukrainian soldiers tend to be a little bit more, uh, I'd say, like amenable to foreign journalists than I imagine the Russian soldiers would be? Well, we don't have any experience with the Russian soldiers, right. so I can't Thank say. God. I think, if you, uh, yeah, I think as with all of these wars that us that that when you come in as a foreigner, as a Western journalist, you often are in a p- position of privilege. Now, I certainly wouldn't want to be taken by the Russians and find out exactly what they would do, but I think it's the Ukrainian journalists that are going to come up against it the worst. If they get if they get taken, then then uh, then they'll likely be tortured, certainly right. jailed, possibly killed. Um, so. I mean, the the Ukrainian forces have been um, accommodating, especially in the early days, to journalists. We've started to see a bit of a change in tone where there's much more of an attempt to control journalists' access, Mm. to make sure that they're not at the front or anywhere near the fighting or military facilities, which has obviously caused tensions and frustrations. Um, But generally speaking, there is a there is a, a sense that they understand what it is we're doing here. Do, do you have any idea why that is, why they're trying to control it a little bit more? I think they're worried about accidentally shooting journalists. Right. I do think that they, they're they worried about you know being held responsible mm. for the deaths of journalists at the front. But the truth is, though, what we do hear a lot is, you know, and I was actually at the very front today. Um, I couldn't bring my cameras. I was working on a, on, on a print piece. So I was right up in the forests uh, north of this city, right to where um, positions are facing the, the Russians. And, you know, we just get, end up getting these big, long, com- getting into long conversations with with soldiers who are saying, you know, we're worried about them tracking your phones. We're worried about them looking at your photographs, looking mm. at your video footage and and trying to figure out positioning because this is a war of artillery fire and rocket fire. So positioning is something that they're really concerned about. Some of that is legitimate. Other parts of it is is not valid and is, is, is relatively unrealistic. Um, so these conversations are ongoing. Now, we've been exposed, at least, you know, from the United States to some pretty horrific footage of the, of the war there. And you've been there for, for two weeks now. Has it been hard to deal with that, with witnessing that kind of suffering just on a human level? I mean, I know you've, you've reported from a lot of combat zones before, but has that been something that you've, you've had trouble dealing with? It's always something that is challenging for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, 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 you know, in war reporting, we see a lot of, of very grave uh, and, 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 and disturbing, um, shocking things. But I think that one of the most difficult things to handle, um, and I remember, you know, it has felt a little reminiscent of, of Kabul during the fall, um, is, is just having to deal with, with, with so much trauma. I and mean, these people are 
so traumatized and you, you know, you're so filled with compassion and so filled with empathy that, you know, that is, it feels self-indulgent to say, but it does feel at the end of the day, so emotionally, um, uh, difficult and challenging, but that's, that's, that's a, that's a muscle that you do build. And mm. um, when you're reporting, you don't build a muscle to numb or to become indifferent. Instead, you become able to manage your own ability to absorb so much trauma and so much sadness from people. Right. Um, you know, it can't be 365 days of the year, but it's these intense periods of handling of trying to be a human being with someone who is, who is experiencing by far the worst day of their life. Right. Um, and so we're so used to witnessing the worst day of many, many people's lives. And um, it's hard, you know, it's hard being a journalist. Like I believe in my work. I really believe in it. And I am a total idealist and I, I'm, I'm a true believer in what we do, but it is very hard to watch for a living mm. and not do. You right. know? I sometimes wish I was a nurse or a doctor, or, you know, a, a water engineer, I, I wish that I drove an ambulance sometimes rather than filmed people getting into them. You know what I mean? Right. You know, I, I was reading your your New Yorker piece uh, on Yemen on the war there about uh, the, um, the starvation that's happening there. And you spoke to a bunch of people that were in hospitals. Um, and you're hearing these stories about people that just need a minuscule amount of money to feed yeah. their family. And I was reading and I was thinking like, God, I would like it must be you like want to just give them like $20 and stuff and like help them out. I can imagine that's such a hard thing for a journalist to do in one of those combat zones is see these people and not be able to help them beyond telling their stories, which is enormously helpful for them. It Telling stories helps collectively, but right. you feel as though you want to help this individual Personally. in front of you. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, Trey Yanks, uh, who's another Fox News reporter uh, who has been covering Ukraine, he, he very understandably, I don't know if you saw this, but he announced this week that he's taking a break uh, from the conflict. Yes. Is that an important thing to do when covering this kind of story for reporters to sort of cycle in and out? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. You know, a lot of journalists, they included, have been here for a very long time. And the, I think that it, a lot of the time it takes our, our, our managers and our bosses and quite often our loved ones to remind us before we know that it is time to take that, that break, right. because you get, you run on adrenaline to the point of where you think you're fine. Um, and whenever you finally switch off, you'll realize what you've actually been putting yourself through. It is, it, you know, the, the emotional impact of the trauma that you're have that you're witnessing and and accounting for every day is is an, is one thing you're working 20 22 hour days so your body is physically exhausted and the physical exhaustion makes it difficult to deal with the emotional exhaustion which then becomes a cycle mm. and and you kind of get caught in this cycle of just about surviving and working on this story and forgetting that you know you've done you, there's a tendency to want to see, see a story through. Right. But unfortunately, this war is going to last, you know, and you have to, it, you know, if you want to last as a journalist, if you want to have a lengthy career, you do have to take care of yourself. Right. Now, at, you know, speaking of the, the, the conflict lasting, I think one of the really tough aspects of this invasion is that it seems like the success of Ukraine in fighting off Russia has resulted in increasingly horrific tactics from the Russian military. In light of that, like, I'm curious what 
if you have a sense of it, what the mood is like among Ukrainian civilians and soldiers. Is there any sort of optimism amongst all this sort of, you know, Russian bombs leveling cities? You know, I wouldn't call it optimism, but there is a sense, I, I hate it because we, we keep overusing this word, but it's the best one is resolve. Right. Because one thing that's been very interesting about covering this war, as opposed to a lot of those that we're used to covering, we're used to covering civil wars, mostly. Hmm. Um, and they may be proxy, yes, but they are typically civil wars. So there's they're filled with complexities, moral complexities, um, uh, you know, social dynamics, tribes, ethnicities, sectarian, sectarian divides. divisions. Right. Exactly. One thing that I think is having a, a psychological impact here is the fact that, you know, the vast majority of Ukrainians view this as we have been invaded from outside. Mm. That is quite simple. And so you don't see politicians fighting and infighting and div 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 divisions within leadership, point scoring. You just don't see that here. And so I do think that there is a sense of, moral clarity there that can help um you know people here feel very much so like they have the moral high ground in this conflict and that the world is with them however much people argue about you know um different levels of help and and you know no fly zones etc there is a, people are very well aware here that the world is 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 um is most of the world see, see, sees this as an aggressive um act so that helps um but from what I have seen, the the the, the tactics, the, the incredibly oftentimes illegal tactics of the Russian military have hardened people's resolve. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't know if that's just Ukrainian, you know, national character, whether people here are simply that unified and tough uh, in the face of hardship or or whether this is a universal uh, reaction to, to these kinds of, uh, of acts. But I talk to Ukrainian soldiers as well, and they tell me quite rightly, you might hear that's the air raid siren going on. Oh my. Um, they tell me, you know, we know they use these tactics because they're losing. Mm. You know, it's so much easier to lob a rocket into a shopping mall than it is right. to stand and fight uh, and, and, and to try to push tank columns forward when they're coming under quite successful ambushes. So I think that some people take take satisfaction in that. There is a fear, though, uh, that, you know, the moral outrage of the world will not hold back Putin's actions. And we see that in Mariupol, the city that's that's most under siege. Right. And, you know, on top of that, I was listening. I was uh, listening to some interviews today with uh, Ukrainian civilians who are still trapped in the country. And they said that a big fear of theirs is that Russian soldiers are no longer trying to avoid harming civilians. And that if they tried to flee the violence now, they might be shot or otherwise attacked by Russian troops. Is that kind of indiscriminate violence widespread at this point in the country? It's appearing to become more widespread, essentially, as the Ukraine, as the Russian army gets more and more frustrated and angry, stuck outside these cities, you know, held off outside cities. Um, they like Mykolaiv, like uh, like like Kiev itself, you know, even, you know, in Kharkiv in the east, as they struggle to take the cities, there is a fear that they lash out more in anger and spite than in strategy. Hmm. Um, so I do think that, 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 that's fearful in the early days of the war, we were at least hearing, you know, 
lip service to sort of legal language around wars, things like, you know, we want to make sure civilians have safe passage out of these places. You know, we are liberating people. Uh, you know, they, they, they were very, there was at least some sort of appearance, whether or not that was coming from the Kremlin or, or, or coming from military commanders in Russia, that, that this was being sold very much so as this great liberation. I think we're seeing less and less of that now. We're seeing, I mean, even with even within Mariupol, the city that's most under siege, they've literally, the Russian military has literally come out and publicly said, uh, this was two nights ago, if your military do not, uh, if, if your Ukrainian military do not surrender, then we will you will run out of time to escape so they're effectively saying we will not be allowing civilians to escape right. which is a war crime yeah. you know to, to 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 purposefully block civilians from escaping uh, the fighting is is a crime so and also in uh, in Kherson which is a smaller city in the south it's probably the only city that the the only larger city that that the russians totally control and one which has seen many protests by incredibly brave local residents who have shown up and stood face to face with Russian, with Russian soldiers and said, we don't want you here. You're an occupying force. We will never capitulate. We have seen as of yesterday, uh, those forces now opening fire mm-hmm. on, on the protesters. So it is certainly getting more ugly. That uh, sort of concept that you mentioned of attacks almost by spite, that reminds me of pretty much what happened um, after three years in the Syrian civil war when it felt like Assad and his uh, supporters uh, started, you know, the, the slogan was uh, Assad or we burn the country to the ground. And exactly. That's, it's a collective punishment. Right. And obviously they, that side was supported by by Russia. So it's not a new strategy for uh, for a country like Russia. It's just, it's still uh, fairly, fairly heartbreaking to see it in, in action. Uh, now, do, do you worry that like many foreign conflicts, uh, including Syria, that the West will eventually stop paying attention to Ukraine, or do you see this as a different conflict in that in that regard? I always worry that that people will stop paying attention. That's eighty five percent of my job, maybe, is to try to get people convincing to care people about, to care yeah. about war, about yeah, about about conflicts that are impacting millions and millions of people. Whether I'm in South Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, you know, even Afghanistan, you know, until until Kabul seemed imminently about to fall, uh, you know, it was it it was you'd go to Afghanistan to report and there'd be almost no one there. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, it's very, you know, and so I, I, I sometimes get into arguments with Ukrainian um, military, military commanders when I'm trying to get access. I'm saying, you know, you know, be, be, be afraid of the media leaving because that's, you know, you've got to keep the world's eyes on what's going on. That's what, you know, Putin will be relying on apathy, right. on a growing sense of apathy and, and, and a growing sense of, of outrage fatigue and empathy fatigue. That's what so many journalists faced when covering Syria, which was heartbreaking. Um, you know, it's always the fear that the world will turn away. Now, this is different in the sense that this feels very much so like a different conflict mm. than any than anyone any of us have covered because of the geopolitical impacts. I mean, Russia invading effectively Europe. It's not the European Union, but it is considered, you know, the eastern eastern end of Europe. Um, you know, Russia pushing up against NATO countries like like Poland. Um, you know, the outright like aggression, the outright illegal invasion of one country into the, into another puts the whole world on alert. What does this mean for, for Chinese relations with Russia and therefore Chinese relations with the rest of the world? So that gives me hope that there will be eyes 
on this conflict, you know, for, for, for longer than we've seen with other conflicts, because the implications, what, what does this mean for NATO? What does it mean for Europe? What does it mean for America's relationship with NATO? I mean, you could unpack this and it would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Whereas a lot of the time, many of us uh, journalists, especially conflict journalists living and working in the Middle East and South Asia and Africa, one of the difficulties we face is trying to get people to care about these wars, not because they don't care about those people, but because they wonder, how does this affect me? Hmm. You know, how does this affect geopolitics? Does this matter in, in you know, the, the upcoming presidential elections? And, you know, it, it, we hate to have to deal with those questions because humans are humans and, and we're covering human stories. But but that is often, um, I think, something that, that that our viewers are sometimes asking themselves. Now, my last question, you have had this incredible career as a foreign correspondent. How did you get your start in it? I don't know. I think that I'm still getting little breaks here and there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I graduated college around about the uh, financial crisis, the the global financial crisis. So me and... Yeah, exactly. Me and my my whole class in college thought we were just going to sail off into fabulously um, successful careers. Right. (laughs) And... And so we ended up becoming that young, the first sort of freelance generation, you know, right. um, bouncing around because at the same time, news organizations were going broke and certainly cutting their foreign news budgets. It was, you know, 2008, 2009, things were just, you know, the coverage was was massively reduced around the world. Um, and so I suppose I went to Yemen to study Arabic mm. uh, and then I bounced over to, to, to taking a job at a newspaper in Dubai which is an English language paper. It was the biggest English language paper in, in the Middle East. And I was I worked as a business reporter, which wasn't really my passion, but it was a, it was a paying job in journalism in my early 20s. So that was exciting. And then I suppose the biggest kind of moment for me was that CNN opened a big hub up in Abu Dhabi. And I jumped in my car and I drove up there and I said, give me a job. <laughs> and they said, no. And so, and so they, but they did say yes to me freelancing for them. So I started reporting from Yemen and Somalia and, and sort of uncovered places. And I was bouncing around with, with my own camera. It had tapes in it. Um, and I, and I, uh, you know, like I was self-shooting. I mean, it was really, really low budget stuff, but I was doing my best. I was just all kind of you know, courage and initiative and absolutely zero skill. So um, so I was trying my best. And I suppose that's really when I get started in TV and when I, I got bitten by the bug of, of travel and, and work and working and covering stories that were not really that well told or not, not well told, covering stories that were undercovered because, you know, I was working around the edges of, of, of news organizations. So that was my first break. I could talk to you for hours about this, Jane, but I know you're extremely busy. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Jane Ferguson on Mediaite.com.